Well, such a lovely ball over the top here, and the run in behind for England is by turn. What a chip! What a goal! The winner is Qatar. It is not safe for someone like me to watch the World Cup in Qatar. The legacy of this tournament is the change in society. More than 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup. England needs an extra time! Officials five million US dollars while lobbying them to the for Qatar. I'm not really for my love of football. I just wonder what's the point anymore, you know. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. Hello and welcome to episode three of Pro Revolution Soccer, a podcast about both football and the politics and economics that surround it. This podcast is part of a wider series of articles and outputs coming out of Navarra Media around the World Cup in Qatar. And all of that is also grouped together under the very nice name we think, Pro Revolution Soccer. My name's Keir Milbin and I'm joined by my ever-fragrant co-host Tom Williams, a.k.a. Shirley Mush. How are you doing, Tom? I'm all right. I'm all right. I've managed to actually derive a little bit more pleasure from, for example, the Senegal and Cameroon games than I, I had done previously in this tournament. So, yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. Thank you. OK, so look, we've titled today's show with a very snappy and provocative question that we're probably not going to answer. Uh, should we should we support our national teams? We've already revealed that we both are supporting our national teams, so that question's answered. But basically, that question is just a way for us to get into thinking about the relationship between football and things such as patriotism, nationalism, and probably like tribalism as well. Perhaps tribalism's inherent in football. Perhaps we'll, we'll discuss that a bit a bit later. So to discuss those questions, we're going to be joined in a moment by a very special guest, actually, the writer, academic and broadcaster, David Goldblatt. Uh, David is the world expert in the history of, of football, uh, among other things, actually. He's written a whole series of incredible football books, uh, including the quite astounding book, The Ball is Round, A Global History of Football. We basically can't recommend that book enough on this podcast. And David also re- wrote a very interesting article about the Qatar World Cup in the London Review of Books recently, and perhaps we'll bring that up a bit later. We might we might dip into that. But before we bring David in, let me just say this. If you're enjoying this podcast and want to support Navarra Media in making more political content that you simply can't find anywhere else, why not become a supporter? Head to navarra.media slash support and set up a donation for as little as £1 a month. Or a little bit more, perhaps, if you're, you're feeling flush. Let's bring David in. Hi, David. How are you doing? I'm all right. Good to be here. Great. <laughs> nice to have you. Should we discuss some football? Let's. Yeah, I think if we start by discussing what's uh, what's going on in the World Cup over the last week or so, but also... Um, Given that David is a is you know I think I, I think it's safe to say a comrade as as well as a as a football expert. Um, it'd be interesting to know whether you know from a political and a football-y perspective, David, have you been enjoying the World Cup? Well, from a, fo- a political perspective, uh, and as a political observer and occasional activist, um, it's been an unbelievable, unprecedented World Cup. Never has the World Cup been so politicised, and never has the World Cup been so contested by so many different stakeholders, individuals and characters. I mean, I think the lesson of this World Cup is that um, while the oligarchs and the states of this world have been relentlessly politicising football for the last 30 years, indeed colonising it, the rest of the world has woken up to that. And football and the World Cup above all has become this extraordinary public theatre 
and global media space in which a whole variety of different political arguments are being contested. So I'm finding that really, really interesting. You know, for the political train spotter, this World Cup is like no other. So the the politics side is great uh, if what you want is politics. Uh, The football side, I mean, as ever at World Cups, you know, a bit mixed. Some really dire nil-nils here and there, but you have to have those. Some fabulous upsets. Um, Saudi Arabia beating Argentina um, uh, has been uh, an extraordinary, extraordinary turn of events. Um, And a few moments of absolute sporting goal. I mean, I'm still enjoying Richarlison's goal for Brazil. I mean, just as an athletic and aesthetic moment, it was Mm. extraordinary. And as the number one Lula supporter in the uh, Mm. otherwise Bolsonarist Brazilian squad, I'm like screaming even more for the man. I reckon it's, that's a great way to sort of come in, actually, because I wanted to ask you about about Richarlison, because Kieran and I have been sort of going back and forth since that goal was scored on whether it, we now have to like Richarlison, because I think we both find his on-field <laughs> antics a bit distasteful a lot of the time. But we're both sort of cognizant of the fact that that might be, and this is a real hot topic that we want to talk to you about more broadly, that might be a case of different footballing cultures bumping up against each other. Is that is that the case? What is it you don't like about Richarlison? What is it about his on-field antics that are problematic for you? I think it's more just a case of, the, the A, the showboating, but probably more the sort of the rolling around on the floor trying to get people booked. That that <laughs> side of it is, is probably what what I... what. What annoys me about it, yeah. I mean, you know, in Brazil, that's like the drill. That's what you're taught, you know, in the academies and from a Mm. very early stage. Mm. Mm. Um, You know, Brazilian football, particularly Brazilian domestic football, is really pretty vicious. Uh, Winner-takes-all kind of, you know, win-at-all-costs kind of space. So I think you get – it's not really surprising um, in that regard – um, I find him very engaging. I mean, you know, one forgets he's a very young man who not so long ago was, you know, so shy and so sort of socially inadequate. He could barely conduct an interview um, of any kind, would hide in, uh, if not in a fridge, then certainly in the dressing room to avoid <laughs> uh, the television. Um, and he's just beginning to make his way. And I think it's quite hard for someone of the kind of political views that he has. He's in an environment where he's absolutely in the minority. So I think you've got to have a lot of respect for the dude to have, you know, come from a very humble background, from um, incredible levels of shyness in a really difficult political environment, you know, is both playing fantastically and, you know, just says all the basically a lot of good things about issues of, injustice and inequality and the rest in Brazil. So I'm kind of feeling at the moment, also as a Tottenham supporter, um, you know, what's not to like? Has the tournament gone the way you expected it to go, both on and off the pitch? It depends where in the world you're looking. And I think it's really important to remember that the World Cup is being experienced very differently in different parts of the world and in a very different frame of reference and with different media coverage. So I would say I expected once the thing started that most of the protest 
and most of the coverage of social and economic and political issues, which had dominated the headlines in many ways, would pretty much disappear and that there would be a focus on the football. It wouldn't necessarily um, be like Russia, where uh, bacchanalian public crowds flooded the world's screens uh, and made Russia seem vaguely normal for a moment. Um, but I did think that it would diminish. And I think in parts of the world, in Latin America, Latin America is only covering the football. It's only covering the football. Um Whereas, of course, in Germany and in Britain and the Netherlands, um, you have relentless, still, coverage of every political um, and social element. And it's getting a lot of coverage. And you can't, just cannot, no one can watch the World Cup without cognizance of that. And then in the Arab-speaking world, there is an element of the politics carrying on. But the uh, voice is good on your Qatar. You tell the West where to go with their universal human rights. You know, we're with you. Plus, we're loving it that Saudi Arabia are winning. And by the way, Western world, this is the best World Cup ever. Um, I mean, I'm slightly caricaturing, but that is broadly what I'm picking up in um, the Middle East and the Arabic-speaking world. So um, I just think it, dep it depends sort of which bit of the world that you're looking at. Um so in that regard, I am I'm pleasantly surprised by the degree to which the BBC in particular, um, but also broadcasters in Scandinavia and the Netherlands and some of the print uh, press have just not given up on the political issues. And they keep finding interesting and useful ways to cover them. Uh, I mean, I thought, you know, for example, uh, James Montague's piece in the uh, New York Times uh, earlier this week on Qatar's ultras was just great. You know, he, like me, was watching those guys in the purple T-shirts going, you've got a lot of tattoos, guys. This is not Qataris so don't do tattoos. That is not their way. Uh, and, of course, it turns out they're all pretty much from Lebanon. Um but what is, again, really interesting in that piece is that they're saying, we don't think we're inauthentic pay-for fans. We're here supporting the wider Middle East and the wider Arabic culture. And Qatar is our kind of tribune in this context. And we're good with that. So I'm I say that as an illustration. I think, you know, in, in parts of the global north, we are getting some really interesting Reporting. I mean, my God, to hear Alan Shearer say, I think the Qatari state should pay into the uh, Amnesty International proposed restitution fund, right, in the middle of a conversation about football, like, this is really, this is new territory. Or, you know, Roy Keane doing his bluff no-nonsense <laughs> on universal human rights and international sporting sports hosts. I thought, <laughs> we're in very different territory here. Um on the other hand, here in the United States, where I am at the moment, you know, there's a real divide. If you're watching Fox Sports, who are the main broadcaster, sponsored by Qatar Airways, you literally wouldn't know that there was anything going on in Qatar uh, untoward. If you watch Telemundo, the Spanish language service, you'll hear a bit more. So it just if you're reading the New York Times or The Athletic, which again has been really, I think, has done some really great journalism on these issues. Um, 
uh, yeah, then you're in a different kind of World Cup. So that is a very long answer to your original question. It sort of has gone the way I expected in some parts of the world. In other parts of the world, the degree of contestation and politicization is higher than I imagined. So, so perhaps we should bring it back to a, a UK focus, um, basically just to talk about the England-Wales match, which, uh, as we record, was last night. I don't really want to... I'm actually from Wales. I grew up in Wales, David, so I don't particularly want to rehearse that <laughs> the evening. Um, but, but you know, an England-Wales match is a good way into discussing, you know, the the role that football can play in, in, in sort of building and, and shaping patriotism and nationalism, that sort of thing. I mean, England, Wales just Wales didn't turn up at the World Cup, and I think it's probably because they've been caught between generations. I think Gareth Bale obviously was unfit, and Aaron Ramsey was certainly not up to speed either. And then the younger players were probably a little bit too younger. They're like the next generation, the Johnsons and Nico Williams, etc., are not quite old enough. So after all those years, after sixty-four years, it was all a damp squib, wasn't it? That, um, but that is a way into discussing the 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 way that. The, the Welsh national football team has has basically uh, just recently actually started to play a role in 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 shaping Welsh nationalism I suppose you would say a sort of rising Welsh independence feeling I think that's probably fair 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 to say I, I went to school in Wales and when I was at school this the school authorities were basically totally uninterested in football it was rugby this <laughs> is the only thing they were interested in uh, my PE teacher was Gareth Edwards's brother, so like they were just focused on that basically. And I think like rugby union has been much more of a of a force for, for Welsh nationalism until probably you'd say the last decade. You know, since Gary Speed and Chris Coleman started this process of making Welsh national football a little bit more credible. Really, uh, that seems to have caught you know seems to have developed into something which is it seems now quite important around Welsh nationalism, particularly around the the David David. Yuan Song, Mohid, etc. We're still here. I suppose that's a long-winded <laughs> question to talk to say. You know, let's talk about the the role that that football plays on both English nationalism and Welsh Welsh nationalism, basically. And and what what is the this this Welsh nationalism that's emerging? And is English nationalism as it's reflected in football changing? So on the Wales front, I mean, I think it's worth remembering that. Rugby union was always the national game of a particular version and constituency of Wales. Um, you know, the hegemonic culturally and politically alliance of organised labour around coal mining in South Wales, the Labour Party uh, and its kind of networks of power in, in local government. And it was a reflection of, you know, industrial working class South Wales. Above all, I mean, of course, rugby union had slightly wider geographical roots, but that really, in the end, is what it represented. Um, you know, English majority speaking uh, as well. And in some ways, that was Wales. That was the dominant power for much of the um, 20th century. And I think what's so interesting about the Welsh national team and the space that it provides for imagining a different kind of Wales is that this is post-industrial Wales. This is a different country where Welsh-speaking uh, minorities are having a much bigger say and a much bigger profile, where the animosity between English and Welsh-speaking Wales, I think, has diminished. 
um, which is ethnically so much more diverse than the Wales of 30, 40 years ago. And that is totally reflected uh, on the pitch in which Wales has, I, I love the way in which Wales's kind of renaissance um, uh, popular culture in music, in writing, in poetry, in Welsh and in English is all finding spaces around the Welsh national team, be it, you know, Welsh Welsh folk songs, be it um, the kind of uh, pop and rock that's being played before games, um, the way the BBC covers uh, uh, and the rest of the Welsh media covers it. So I think this is, you know, it's very, it seems to me just so obvious that of course this is going to be the space in which a new Wales can be imagined. I mean, in the end, you know, rugby union, it was so male, so clannish, so ultimately in the end tied to a imperial stroke British framework in which New Zealand and Australia are your main points of reference. And football makes Wales, you know, global. It connects Wales to all its own global connections. It puts it out there in the world that the way rugby union never can and gives voices to all sorts of new bits of Welsh identity that didn't exist, you know, or certainly were not being heard under the kind of rugby union hegemony. So that's sort of how I'm reading it from uh, from Bristol anyway, over the uh, over the water. Um, in the case of England, you know, there's a more titanic struggle going on. I mean, there are two different versions constantly of English national identity being represented and challenging each other in English football. I mean, the best example of that for me, you know, is the whole controversy over taking the knee at Euro 2020. Uh, and you've got one bit of the football nation you know, that is booing and saying you're a bunch of Marxists and getting tacit and explicit support from the most right-wing and vile politicians, both the Prime Minister and the then Home Secretary. And then you've got the other England, you know, which is incredibly diverse and, as we know, really does reflect the England that you see in the recent census, mm. and that is not having it. Mm. And the players took the knee 80% of the crowd um, clapped and the players, you know, are now articulate enough and educated and autonomous and confident enough um, to basically have the Prime Minister and the Home Secretary on toast. They absolutely destroyed them for the kind of self-serving, whistle-blowing hypocrites that they are. And they did that more effectively than any member of the Labour Party has managed in the last decade or so. So I think how incredible. I mean, and on another front, I think a lot of this, you know, it's worth remembering that, you know, in the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, it's a very masculine version of the nation. Um, and what was so amazing at Euro 20. Uh, 22 earlier this year, I was lucky enough to go to the final. I went and saw, um, yeah, England beat Germany. My God, I never thought I'd see England win anything in my whole life, and I finally did. And what I saw was a representation um, and a version of the English nation in which a you had hardly any drunkards or coked-up maniacs, which definitely was a plus. But most importantly. 
There was England playing Germany at football and not a single reference to the Second World War. A completely different way of imagining who the English are and who they might be without making the Second World War and by proxy the whole bloody imperial legacy the centrepiece of contemporary Englishness. So that's an amazing moment. You know, football kind of has these, um, provides these opportunities, particularly, I think, in England, where like, where else are we going to go for imagining an alternative civic nationalism? You know, what, what are the English institutions around which that can be built? You know, the Church of England? Well, we know they're completely out of the game. English National Opera? Like, come on. What is that? You know, Parliament. Parliament is is British. The the Crown is British. Um, the Army, as I keep King telling. Charles. Well, there you go. So I think that makes it an amazing space, uh, and I'm generally pretty positive for all the negatives. And you know, we know over the years the England crowd uh, and the England following. Um, you know, we've had a lot of racism, we've had a lot of nativism, we've had right-wing infiltration, we have support for, you know, um, Protestant unionism and its violent end, uh, end uh, amongst the England crowd. But what's so great is that that other England or those other Englands have space to breathe now. Um, and um, that is, yeah, like what else have English nationalists got? If you want a progressive English nationalism, I don't know where else you're going to start. It's, it's interesting that you reference other Englands um, because with regard to the question of whether, whether we should support a national team or, or a team full stop actually and thinking then about what, what are we aligning ourselves with when we support a national team. My own sense of it is that it's amorphous and it's going to mean different things to different people. You know, for some it probably is about nation and, and, and there will be a, a racist and revanchist character to that. But for others... It might it might be a means of assimilation, actually. And then for others, it's an alignment with a culture or a subculture. And then for, for still more people, it, it's probably got more to do, and I would put myself in this bracket, it's probably got more to do with nostalgia and an emotional hangover from childhood than anything else. It's Italian 90, it's Euro 96, and for younger people, probably 2018 and 2021, and the patchwork of associated childhood or adolescent memories that are intrinsically linked to the, the experience of following England and... And the, the way in which that becomes this big zeitgeisty communal thing. I think it was through reading Joe Kennedy, another great football writer, Joe Kennedy's work on this, that I was uh, able to grasp this and make sense of my own relationship with football and my football teams. Joe writes about, and I'm, I'm quoting now, the anticipation of the memory of winning. But, but to riff on that a bit, I think football, by creating these memories, contributes to the cultural architecture of not just institutions, uh, but of thousands of relationships and even of whole societies, actually. Now, there's a tendency of football allegiances and alignments towards what Benedict Anderson wrote about when he talked about imagined communities. So the nation as a socially constructed community and all the nasty stuff that often goes with that. But football teams' capacities to act as generators of communal memory, I think, demonstrates the richness of the game and its cultures. For sure. I mean, all what nationalism... What identity isn't built on childhood memory and nostalgia? I don't think nation nationalism of any uh, variant um, is immune to that, nor do I think it necessarily negative. I mean, it's often said in a pejorative term 
uh, pejorative way, but like how else do we as human beings, you know, come to an adult understanding of who we are and what we are in this world in the absence of, you know, our childhood, our childhood memories. So I'm sort of slightly, I kind of think, yeah, that's just the way of the world. And one thing I do know about this World Cup um, is that it's not just national identities that are in play. I think there are um, also uh, regional and pan-national identities, particularly in the Arab world in Africa, where, you know, people are following African teams. Uh, I was communicating with um, an Egyptian acquaintance of mine who used to run the ultras at Zamalek before they got banned by the Egyptian state. And he's saying in the cafes of um, Cairo, everyone is backing the Arab teams. Then everybody backs the African teams as a sort of secondary Egyptian element to Egyptian identity as they're part of Africa, you know, the continent physically, but also of the football. Um, and then third, they support Latin America because it's global south versus global north. And that's, you know, that's the hierarchy pretty much across all Egyptian football fans. So I think you're seeing... It's not just national identities, I suppose, that I'm saying here uh, uh, are in are in play. Um, and I kind of think this is a good thing. I think, you know, for progressive politics, it's like, thank God it's there. I mean, how else are, is one meant to intervene or engage in these wider kind of debates about who and what we are? I think it offers a really amazing platform. I think it's good. And I think you're also, people kind of, on the one hand, people say, well, football's a bad place for this kind of politics because it's so tribal, it's so aggressive, it's so sort of zero-sum game, we win, you lose. These are all very negative elements. And obviously, you know, the right over the years have used it as an opportunity to criticise uh, the diverse ethnic makeup of their teams, uh, players of colour who don't sing the national anthem, that whole set of tropes. So you've got that going on. On the other hand, I think increasingly that football culture is also an incredibly cosmopolitan place. I mean, it's a terrible cliche that, you know, football is the global game and football unites people and, you know, you want to slightly, you feel slightly feel sick. It's so saccharine. And yet it does have, it does have a kernel of truth. There is no more popular, popular cultural phenomena in this world. There is no uh, better and easier way of communicating with folks who are like right out of your space than football. I mean, I just speak from my own experience. It's like it opens doors and provides a kind of playing field to engage with folks like no other. And I don't know any other space in which the world feels... You know, where do you have collective global imaginings? I mean, the Olympics? Oh, please. Like anybody gives a shit about the Olympics. <laughs> you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares. I'm very excited that you've you've brought this up, actually. Uh, I mean, I suppose, it's a, you know, I'm a communist, so I'm pretty dubious about nation states. But I also think it's important to understand that politics isn't the only terrain of struggle and that, that football increasingly is or certainly should be becoming a, a, a new sort of site of of struggle for, um, you know, however you want to define yourself, a, a progressive or a socialist or, or, or whatever, really. But this this brings me on to Jürgen Klinsmann's, well, series, really, of uh, quite incendiary remarks, actually, about footballing cultures, specifically about Iranians. More broadly, though, in a conversation on the BBC with Gary Lineker and my, my great lost hero, Mauricio Pochettino and Rio Ferdinand the other night, 
Klinsman said in relation to managing an international team, you have to figure out, and I'm quoting again here, you have to figure out a way to keep an identity for your national team. And that identity should reflect the culture of your country. You need to win over the fans, the people in your country, which you think that's what an English people like or Argentinian people like. You have to meld into this kind of identity picture as a manager. Now, in your in this you know seminal book that David wrote, the ball is round. David David wrote a lot about the distinctive footballing cultures that developed in different parts of the world. Are those footballing cultures always liable to collapse into jingoism and weird essentialisms, or can they potentially create a diversity that we as left wingers or progressives can can celebrate and enjoy, particularly during a big international tournament? I think it all depends how sophisticated your commentary and your kind of alternative perspectives on this are. I mean, it's, you know, what these things mean is a battleground. It's not set. You know, it's like what how a team plays. I, I don't quite buy the essentialism thing. I think it all depends on how we're writing about it and thinking about it and contextualising it. And so I think in that regard, football opposite, you know, it, it, it's for journalists and commentators. This is a contested space. Um, you know, as to what uh, what this means. I mean, you know, to give an example, the Brazilian national team in 38 does amazingly at the World Cup. And hitherto, you know, it's got two black stars who've been excluded from the team because the white Brazilian uh, elite, you know, are trying to maintain the fantasy that we're actually just a European country. We just happen to live in the tropics and know there aren't any black people here. And obviously, everyone, that's not cutting any ice anymore. (laughs) So what kind of version, you know, something was going to change. And I think it's really interesting that Gilberto Frey, the um, anthropologist uh, and significant public intellectual in the late 1930s in Brazil, intervenes in the 1938 World Cup. And really, it's his writings that shape perceptions of Brazil's relationship to football to this day. I think there's no more significant intervention. And he basically says, look, guys, we're not Europeans, okay, but that's good, okay, because what we are is hybrid. We're European, we're indigenous, we're African. And that's what makes our music good. That's what makes our dance good. And that's what makes our football good. So stop feeling bad about it. Feel good about it. And while, you know, This is not to say that racism or inequality disappeared in Brazil overnight, but it was a profound intervention uh, of a pretty progressive kind that made the idea of a kind of, you know, a white Brazil completely inconceivable after that, completely changes the tone of the conversation. Uh, And I think also changes the tone of the conversation about what does Brazilian football mean and look like, and there's a dialectical interaction between those. So I think... There were other ways of writing up that World Cup. There were other ways of interpreting it. Um, but Freie's uh, intervention sunk deep into Brazilian football uh, and indeed popular culture. So I think what kind of nationalism and what kind of identity football generates is partly down to, you know, this is politics, people. It's like you've got to pick your pen up, you know, and intervene and interpret um, and there is a battle going on there. Um, and I think, again, I'm seeing in England at any rate, look at the way English football was being covered in 19, 
let's say 1996, when Piers Morgan was still, you know, hiring World War II uh, armoured vehicles and sending them to the German hotel, right, with like tin-hatted Stuart Pierce Tommy on the front page of The Sun. We've moved on. Mm. We have really, really moved on uh, from that. I don't think it's possible to do that anymore. I don't think it's possible to think about England in quite that way anymore. So... I see this, as I say, what I hear these criticisms from um, my, uh, my left-wing uh, comrades all the time. And I just think, guys, you're speaking to yourselves. <laughs> You've got the first precondition of meaningful progressive politics is you speak to the average person and you speak to them where they are, not where you are. And football offers that in a way that no cultural phenomena does. And I would say rather than ignoring it or decrying it or saying this is inevitably nativist or jingoistic, actually, we need to be intervening. You know, that's the, that's the, uh, you know, and I think Mark Perryman, I just want to give a shout out to Mark Perryman's work over the years as a kind of really good example of that. When nobody wanted to do it, he set up England fans and tried to offer a space um, where a more progressive non-racist version of English football fandom could be nurtured and grown. And I think that made really significant intervention. More of that, please, from everyone. Well, it's probably a good opportunity to uh, to plug something that's just in the last couple of hours gone out on the Navarra website from um, Alex Stewart, friend of friend of the show, friend of friend of this project, friend of me, actually. Um, Alex, who's one of the most you know respected new voices in in football writing and football media to have emerged over the last sort of five to ten ten years, but has written a piece on the Navarra website on Orban and Hungary and the the use of Orban's use of football. So I said it be that's a good segue to uh, to give that a plug, and, and people should definitely go and check that out. I mean, I think what, what you're saying about the England team and English. English football and and the, the need for it to be sort of contested. I, I mean, if you think about, obviously that the, there are a lot of sort of blood and thunder type players that that England have given to the world, and we do still have fans who sort of cheer on four four two and quite direct styles of play as if they're the national team itself. And you know, Rio Ferdinand on the on the show that I was referencing earlier was was talking about the need to be on the front foot and in people's faces and basically go around kicking people. But it's worth remembering that. This is the nation that, that gave that gave Jimmy Hogan um, to to the world. Jimmy Hogan, who is I think widely, fairly widely acknowledged to be the godfather of total football. Um, so it's I think like like David says, it, it is a contested space, and it's you know that, that there's no sort of essential character actually to to English football or, or the football that's that's played or developed or enjoyed really in any in any country and and also that frankly the type of football that you like to see played is as subjective a thing as the, what taste in music you've got frankly yeah that's for sure i mean i i just got to say on that when i watch england with bristol rovers fans as i do i note that the thing that always gets the most applause from them is when a ball is shepherded out for a goal kick by a defender like that's what they tricks and flicks no one cares but a bit of solid defensive muscle that's what people like i mean i think the football being played by england at the moment 
is a reflection above all of the globalization and immense wealth of the Premier League. You know, like if you look at Phil Foden's play or indeed Jack Grealish, their technical ability, their touch, their degree of control is equal to anything in the Spanish or the Dutch teams who are traditionally considered to be the most technical as they as they say. And I think that's a reflection of the complete transformation of training, coaching and club structure uh, under conditions of intense globalisation in the Premier League. You know, it's a different... The conditions under which English football players were once trained and nurtured has so changed out of all, all proportion. I mean, Phil Foden, on the one hand, is clearly from working-class Manchester, you know, like Norby Styles and a whole bunch. But the way he plays, his body shapes, his technique, I mean, I can really... He is balletic, I would say. This is not a blood and thunder player. He is the most balletic. His body movements are absolutely incredible. His balance is incredible. You know, this is like watching... It's not a traditional English version, but then I like I say England and English football has changed out of all recognition, and that's what you get. It's it's important to sort of like to, to add to that. I think that part of the reason it's changed and part of the reason it's caught up is that you know having been you know kicked out of Europe, you know, and 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 cut off actually from the kind of networks through which skills and techniques and coaching methods are are passed on. Um, Basically, what happened was we, we implemented this thing called the Elite Player Performance Plan, about which I, I have very mixed feelings. But where that stems from is Howard Wilkinson and Les Reed just crunching numbers and looking at what makes a successful international football team and trying to get elite academies to implement that. You know, it, it really is just looking at what the rest of the world was doing mm. and trying to get English players to be able to do it. So, that you know, it was badged up bizarrely, I think, under Ashworth at the FA as, as England DNA. But where it actually comes from is not England. It, it comes it comes from just sort of looking at, at what works. And also having all of those folks then working here. Mm. I mean, part of what's going on as well is that um, it's not just the, the players have to change; it's the fans who have to change as well. They have they have to be they have to learn to appreciate a different form of, or form of football, and I think that's probably what the Premiership has done. <laughs> Which is perhaps why, when you watch your football in Bristol, it's not quite reached there. And I speak from experience. I'm a I'm a Leeds fan, basically, and of course, for a long time, we we like players to look like David Batty and we wanted him to, to get stuck in which is partly why I love uh, Marcelo Bielsa so much because he he fucking educated us basically yeah he came yeah. and educated yeah. us in, in 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 much much more expansive styles of football and I think that's probably what the Premier League has done for England fans as well it, it changes your expectation about about um you know what you can get out of it but yeah, one of the things I wanted to wanted to say was um, in previous years, I've I've always been a bit ambiguous about with, about England winning the World Cup, and not because I'm Welsh, because now Wales are out. I've taken my bucket hat off and I've put my <laughs> my Saint George's knotted hanky on my head. I, I'm fully. <laughs> I want England to win the World Cup. This, this, but I've always felt a bit ambiguous about it, about whether I would just feel alienated if they did. Do you know what I mean? And that goes back to like when when, when Leeds won the, the, the last ever first division. And then, it, you know, there's this big thing that sp spreads around the city. And I, I felt alienated from it. I thought, oh, this is not quite the thing I've been following, is it? And I've always been worried that, like, England winning the World Cup or the Euros would 
and I mean the, the English males team for these reasons would basically turn into something that looked a little bit like the you know the the Queen's funeral or the King Charles's coronation something would be a big public mood and all of a sudden I'd feel alienated and I'd be outside of these bonds that I I feel inside over time I'm not sure whether that's true anymore I don't know like do you two want England to win the World Cup put it that way oh yeah for sure of course I mean, bring it on because, you know, I go back to E.P. Thompson, you know, at uh, Glastonbury in 1984, made an amazing speech. And he said, remember, you know, England is not just its soldiers and its imperialists and its bankers. You know, England is a society of radicals, of artists, of musicians you know, there is that other England, and it drives me mad that such a narrow version of Englishness, such a boring, awful, third-rate, racist, small-minded, shitty version of the country is endlessly hegemonic. And here is an opportunity to blow that out of the water, because that is not the England that makes this England football team. There is no way that you can correlate ethnically, um, culturally, um, sportingly that this is a team that represents that shit version of England. It's not the England that I live in and it's not the England that I believe is possible. I'm feeling, I feel really good about it. I have to say, like Raheem Sterling scoring the winning goal for England in a World Cup, like how cool is that? You know, I would be, I would treasure such a thing and I would welcome the opportunity that it provides to contest in the wider cultural and political world what me, what England means. I'm so sick of it. Oh man, you know, nuns, nuns and warm beer and bicycles and village greens and all of that stuff. Like enough already, enough. England is, you know cosmopolitan, urban, ethnically complex and mixed and diverse. Like, please, that's the England I know. It's the England most people know. And um, I actually think England winning the World Cup would be an amazing opportunity to, you know, that structural change, I would say, uh, or certainly offers the possibility of that. And when you've got, you know, like, look at these dudes, like, Harry Kane, who is entirely at ease with the notion, you know, of defending LGBT rights. I mean, we can argue about whether the FA should have let him wear the armband or not. But like, that's the England captain. And Harry Kane, who's a very normal working class white English bloke, right? I mean, or appears to most of the world. And it's like totally, totally unproblematic. That is culture shift. Can you imagine Bobby Moore or Brian Robson like, you know, feeling at home in that space, it's inconceivable. And like, this is good. That's the England I know, actually. And the England, you know, I just, you know, that needs to be the dominant interpretation and understanding of who we are. This is an opportunity to make it happen. Of course, financially, it'd be a disaster because I got money on Argentina. (laughs) (laughs) 
Now you've mentioned D.P. Thompson, I wonder if, like, well, well, perhaps, 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 what I'm realizing without that, you know, without having sort of, without having realized it, what what we may be doing is uh, E.P. Thompson talked when he about the the working, the making of the English working class as his as his attempt to re- rescue the poor Stockinger and the various other sort of like bits of like lumpenized proletariat, I suppose. So perhaps what we're trying to do is is, is rescue the, uh, the 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 poor Leeds fan, the poor Southampton fan, the poor Spurs fan, the poor Bristol Rovers fan from the the kind of the way that they are kind of interpolated and uh, spoken about as, as sort of oiks, frankly. You know, we, we, we I think here and I believe quite deeply in the idea that football fans can be and in fact are political people and that there's just this sort of there's this nascent thing that can can totally be turned into a force for good i think that might be a great way to wrap things up actually both of those little rants i thought were absolutely perfect um, and perhaps if, if in this podcast we can give a little bit of an expression to these things which are getting more expression but uh, 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 still um having to battle against the the tabloid version of 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 england and the UK more generally. Look, David, thanks so much for coming on. You've been fantastic. Really, really appreciated you coming on. If people wanted to follow what you've got going on, um, how can they follow you? How can they see what you're up to? I'm on Twitter at at David S. Goldblatt. Um, I'm not writing actually anything right now, um, but I think towards the end of the World Cup, I will probably be doing a few overviews and... um, the piece in the London Review of Books is probably the best place to go uh, right now. Yeah, it's, it's called How to Get on Television, isn't it? Or How to Get on TV. That's right. Brilliant piece. Please go and read it if you're listening to this. That's great. Thanks so much, David. So next week, we're going to be talking about why we love football. I think we've almost touched on some of that today, but we're going to be talking <laughs> about why we love football, talking a little bit about Tom wrote an absolutely fantastic article about his relationship with his dad, with his stepdad, through football, through Southampton. We're going to be talking about that sort of that sort of element of, of why we love football. We're also going to be asking questions like, if we could remove all the inequalities, these global inequalities in wealth, etc., that, that, that seem to be flowing through football and disrupting football, or if we could even get to socialism, would football be better or worse? Right, that question. <laughs> would it be worse? Would it be less of a, a, a competitive spectacle? Or would it be better? Uh, an open question. To talk about those sorts of questions, we're going to be joined by the writer, critic, and Clapton CFC centre forward Juliet Jakes. Really looking forward to speaking to Juliet. And we're also going to talk to Navara Media's Labour correspondent Polly Smythe about an article she wrote for Navara recently about why a, a global trade union leader has suddenly become a bit of a a fan for Qatar. She wrote a very interesting bit of investigative journalism on that. Look out for the next episode of Pro Revolution Soccer dropping on a week Friday. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, David. That's all for this week, and we'll see you soon. independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support.